This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It is always my pleasure to be here with you. And, uh, you know, I talk a lot about sexless marriages and, and infidelity. And, and I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice. And, of course, I did that TEDx talk, which has had over 16 million views about the subject. Um, but you know what? Brooke... Yurik joins me of Seeking.com. She is their spokesperson, and they surveyed over 8,000 men, some of whom list their status as, get this, married but looking. Good evening, Brooke. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, So this is a very interesting study. I think uh, infidelity isn't something we talk about a lot unless we say, they cheated, that's it, they're a louse, throw them out. But we never look beneath the sheets. We never look at what's going on or what isn't going on in the bedroom at home. So this survey revealed quite a bit. So you can, t- can you tell me a little bit about the reasons men cheat? Absolutely. So Seeking.com is the dating site, but we're a little bit different because we let people be honest about their status. And yeah, some of our members are married but looking. So we decided to do a little survey of all our members uh, who were willing to answer this, you know, in a short amount of time and to see what they had to say about the whole cheating epidemic. We got a response that some of them were not cheaters. They had never cheated. Um, That was actually the most popular response. But then the second most popular was in fact a sexless marriage. Um, so it goes without saying that some of these men who are on our site are looking for relationships where they get to have sex. And that's understandable. Um, and then we also found a really interesting response was that a lot of our members are in open relationships. So maybe they've been in a marriage for some years and they have permission to go outside the marriage. Um, so it kind of begs the question, is that cheating? Uh, I think some would say, yes, it is. Um, others might say, no, it's not. Yeah, I think it depends on what the contract is in that open relationship. Some people might say they're in an open relationship and they're in a closed one. <laughs> um, you know, I right. see, but I do see a lot of women in my clinical practice enough to notice that they will say they no longer want to have sex with their husband. They want to remain married. They love him. They care about him. All of this, but they have given him permission to go and have sex outside of the relationship. Now, most of those guys don't do it, I find, because in part, I think the women have found the panacea for the guy who wants to cheat. They've removed the excitement from it. So if you have permission to cheat, it takes away that covert, uh, you know, liaison, that that meeting that, you know, because that's part of the cheating is the excitement. And because so many people, men and women, report boredom in the bedroom. I think that it could be about the excitement, but it's also about feeling that spark again and feeling a new connection. And if you've been with your partner for decades, then maybe that's gone and maybe you want to feel alive again. And it's really not so unreasonable to think that your partner would want to see you happy. Um, And if that's what it takes, you know, you can go outside the marriage. I know that uh, from what I hear, it oftentimes will bring a couple closer together uh, or leave them with a more fulfilled marriage if they are willing to be honest about that. Yes, but it's, it's, you know, people, we're emotional beings. And I find when they do give permission and then it happens, they 
they are surprised by their reaction. And, you know, the other thing that I see in my clinical practice is that um, women will, you know, typically a couple will come in, they're in a sexless marriage, they haven't had sex for two years, five years, a decade, and the woman will, you know, sit there, um, stake in the ground, she is not having sex. And I say, well, you know, is it fair to impose fidelity on a person who is deprived of sex from their spouse? So what if he cheated? And even he says, I'm not going to cheat, I'm not going to leave you, I've been divorced once, I'm not going to divorce you. He gives away his cards, you know, which I'm like, can you hold those cards closer to your chest? But the women will say, if he cheated, I'd kill him. And I think that is the, the general uh, feeling um, of a lot of married women uh, that are in sexless marriages, that they would kill their husbands if they learned that he was cheating. And today, cheating is, as you said, it's an epidemic. And there's so many ways we cheat. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Um, I think that if women are uncomfortable with the idea of non-monogamy, it probably has something to do with their own insecurities. Because if you've been with someone for that long, I don't think that them having a relationship with someone else would discount your marriage or discount your relationship. I mean, it might end up adding to it. Well, it, yeah, it's the biggest thing, though, is, um, you know, this is the biggest betrayal, I think, is infidelity going outside of the marriage. And many people struggle uh, with repairing the marriage afterward. There's some conventional wisdom out there. Estee Perel often says um, that this that was your former marriage. That might have been your first marriage with your wife, and now you're on to your second marriage with your wife. But the truth is it's extremely difficult to heal from infidelity, especially where it hasn't been condoned. Uh, there's another um, you know, uh, reason for cheating, and that is neglect. Um, so many people are feeling neglected in their relationship. Yeah, that is common as well. And I think that that is a component of a sexless marriage sometimes. But like I said, people just want to feel the spark. They want to feel a connection and feel emotions again. Um, and that can be lacking when you've been with someone for a really long time. Because you really have to stay on top of it. You really have to stay on top of your marriage and especially the intimate aspects of your marriage. We are also victims of this chronic over-busyness, which can be as traumatic, have such as much of a negative impact on your brain as viewing a traumatic incident as a child. And so women tend to be you know, busy with the uh, parent advisory councils, with their p- focusing on their children, their friends, um, their jobs, their uh, housekeeping. I, I have a patient in my clinical practice, a couple where he they've been sexless for 10 years. And he said that their house is so tidy and so clean because that's all she does is clean the house. And so that can lead, yeah, that can lead to neglect. It's really a sad, sad situation. And yet I want to say something else too, which I forget to say. Sometimes you don't want to have sex with your partner because they're jerks. (laughs) So it's not always like everybody, you must have sex with your partner. If somebody is being abusive or angry or using substances, you know, people will present and they'll say to me, you know, we haven't had sex for five years, but they have a drinking problem. And and I'll say that to them. You know, your, you know, excessive uh, substance use, your substance use disorder is affecting your relationship because of your anger. So the the answer isn't, you know, everybody have sex with your partner regardless. Yeah, that's interesting to think about and to think that they just 
don't have good communication and they can't talk about that and figured out the root of their problems because, I mean, they were having sex at one point. Why can't they do it again? Well, because oftentimes uh, medical conditions come up like vaginal dryness, which leads to painful sex and low sexual desire. Um, Men love to have sex when they're stressed. Women do not. The last thing they want to do is have sex when they're stressed. More women report boredom in the bedroom than men do. Men also report boredom in the bedroom. Uh, You know, people are have added weight. They have body image issues. So they're not actually able to, let's just say, you know, do a few acrobats in the bedroom, <laughs> acrobatic maneuvers, right. which would which would make things more exciting. A lot of people are, you know, same old, same old. So my next book is, you know, you again. Anyway, <laughs> Brooke, Urich, thank you so much for joining me on the Sunday Night Health Show. I really appreciate uh, Seeking.com uh, survey because 8,000 men answered that, which uh, really gives us a bird's eye view into what's happening in the bedrooms out there. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. This segment should be called, I Want You to Want Me. I love that song. Anyway, um, we're going to be talking about sexual turn-ons. Not sexual healing. I'm not going to burst into Marvin Gaye's song. Um, Sexual turn-ons. And it turns out that they are different for men than they are for women. What a surprise. To be honest with you, I think about the turn-ons for women i i do i i feel for you guys because it's it's hard work okay it sounds like a lot of hard work you're gonna get confused you're not gonna uh be able to do it you're not gonna be able to pull it off okay (laughs) so good luck but you know what knowledge is power and so understanding or having a good knowledge base will at least help you head in the right direction. Okay. Um, and you know, keep in mind that every woman is different from another woman. So for a particular woman to be sexually attracted to you and want to be sexually intimate in a deep and meaningful way, she has to feel often intuitively that her individual sexual needs will be met by the sexual experience with you. She may even be attracted to you in all other areas, but if her sexual instincts don't pick up what she's looking for sexually, forget about sex with her. And I hear this so often in my clinical practice. They're just like, he is perfect in every way. He makes money. He's got hair. He's got a car. He's nice. He's good to his mother, all of this stuff. But I'm just not sexually attracted to him. I don't find him appealing. But I want to, and they can't. But anyway, regardless, what turns her on? A man who makes her feel beautiful, okay? I know, guys, that's going to be hard because you're basically going to have to try to convince her that she's beautiful. Um, So these are kind of the conventional ones. And then I want to report to you on a a sexual turn-on for men and women that might surprise you. But this is what turns women on. Um, A man who makes a woman feel safe. So that means... uh, I'm treating her like she is a vital part of this existent and not a favorite sperm dump site. But the other thing is making her feel safe means not driving really fast, not insisting she go on the back of a motorcycle when she's scared to death. Um, you know, also living above the law that makes a woman feel safe. So things like that. Uh, a lot of women, and, and you know what, this is this goes both ways. The door swings both ways on this one. A man who does not shy away from public display of affection or PDA moments. Um, and so look at her, you know, with that love in your eyes, that 
that attraction that there's no one else in this world, even though we're at a party of a thousand. And also a man who knows the right places to touch. But quite frankly, uh, a woman needs to tell you that. Where are the right places to touch? Um, And when one who cares whether or not she is enjoying the experience that her needs are being met. Okay, so you know what? Uh, sex is a two-way street as well, and it's it's mutual. It ought to be mutual, uh, consenting, and pleasure-oriented for both. So that brings us down to another turn-on for women, a man who is pleasure-oriented rather than performance-oriented. And you know what? A lot of guys are performance-oriented in part. You know, they are the providers. They're masculine. They're meant to be strong. They're meant to, you know, be competitive and prove others, you know, according to evolution and um you know, the top dog, basically. So one who is not driven by let's get it on, but rather completely 100% in the moment. We've been living in the moment. Okay, so a man who understands that foreplay and afterplay are just as important, if not more important to a woman, especially that afterplay, especially that time when the cigarette gets lit up. I'm kidding, of course. The iPhone is actually fired up. That's what happens because it's actually, you know, some old data is that 10% of people check their smartphones during sex. And that's, you know, that's from three or four years ago. I bet today uh, it's way more than that. And so if you want to, um, for somebody not to be checking their iPhone during sex, understand that you got to be in the moment and foreplay is important. And also a woman is turned by on by a man who understands that there are many other ways a woman can experience orgasm and not just through penetrative sex. In fact, you know, only about 30% of women can experience orgasm through penetrative sex. And I'll tell you, there are women who can experience uh, an orgasm with penetrative sex with Johnny, but they cannot experience penetrative sex orgasms with Billy. So anatomy matters, okay? And, And physiology and chemistry and that attraction. So that is really important. And women don't like men who are not obsessed with his own body, who are obsessed, sorry, with his own body. So you, you, you can't be so into yourselves, guys, okay? Um, and so you've got to actually be, you know, kind of go outside of yourself for that. And this is probably, should be number one on the list, a man who has good hygiene, okay? So brush your teeth, fix things, <laughs> spend some money on yourself, okay? It can go a long way in the bedroom. So what turns guys on. You're probably thinking whipped cream and you're probably thinking um, uh, porn. Well, that these do certainly, um, you know, ice cubes. <laughs> and they certainly can turn guys on from what men have told me uh, in my, you know, in a very professional way. Um, but these are not necessarily the things that turn men on. And some of the biggest turn-ons for men are things you can do tonight, right after the show. Um, You know, men aren't that, men are not as simple as we make them out to be, you guys. You're you're fabulous, you guys. And, but the things that turn men on aren't really that complex. So a woman who loves her body, a woman who is into her body, has confidence in her body. This is important because so many people, especially women, have 
body image issues. And that translates to negative situations or scenes in the bedroom. I've heard patients say that they didn't want their husband to touch their stomach. They don't, they leave their shirt on during sex. They leave their pants on during sex. This makes it hard for a sex expert to actually deal with this. But I've got to get down to, you know, that's one of the questions I now ask in my clinical practice. So do you remove your clothes during sex? <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Um, but you know what? You got to love your own body. Um, and you know what? TV and movies and everybody tells you you got to be perfect, but you don't have to. Men love a woman who loves to have fun in bed. And so, you know, sex is not just uh, a utility uh, designed for us to procreate. And a lot of women's desire increases when they want to have a baby. But, you know, sex is a pastime that's supposed to be fun and enjoyable. And also women, uh, men like women with an open mind. You know what? Open mind, open heart. Things are so much better. It doesn't mean that you don't have a boundary or a healthy boundary that, you know, a man shouldn't cross and you always have a veto power or a secret word ladies so but if there's if he does something that you maybe are not into don't judge him for it um people are allowed to express their sexuality and you know men love to know that they're wanted this might surprise you there's a lot of negative programming for women as they grow up in regard to sex and sharing their sexuality with men they're told you know men are bad never show a guy that you like him never show your sexual side don't let men know that you have sexual desire well you know what all that is true and you know men need to know that you want him that you enjoy sex and you enjoy sex with him and of course one of the biggest turn on turn ons for men is that dirty talk tell him with your words because sexuality begins in his mind so let him know what you like and what you want him to do and you know what you will capture everything including his deepest imagination it's important to let somebody know that you're smart because it is a turn on um, for people and you know it's a sexual turn on for people and so especially women will kind of underestimate their intelligence because they don't want men uh, to feel less than but anyway you know what it is important and um, I would not worry about it one bit I'm Maureen McGrath you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show we are in the final strokes of the program. Uh, we were talking about sexual turn-ons before the break, and I touched upon sapiosexuality, when intelligence is a turn-on. We all think about the ones which I reviewed, the whipped cream and the ice cubes and the you got to think I'm wonderful kind of thing, and that really turns me on, somebody who is crazy about me. Um, but you know what? There's something that you might not think about, and, and this is actually something, um, you know, promoting, <laughs> dare I tie it to promoting education for women and also lifelong learning for people. So uh, because intelligence is also a perception, and so somebody can think somebody is really smart, and they may not actually be, but they come off uh, as really smart. Not to say that I want to uh, encourage people to fake it because women are fabulous at faking, as you know, um, and faking anything is never good. Um, but in popular culture, a sapiosexual or a sapiophile is someone who thinks that high intelligence is sexually attractive. You know, you can't help this. It's not just that these people think it would be desirable to have a partner with a high IQ, these people are actually sexually aroused by high levels of intelligence in another person. You got to you got to admit it's kind of sexy because uh, along with intelligence, you know, the, the intelligent people, they're also self-confident and I actually think that there it might be the self-confidence that you are attracted to. But um 
much has been said and, and written about this, but, you know, we don't really think about it and it really hasn't been studied until now. There's a new study that has been published in the journal Intelligence that offers the first empirical data that sapiosexuality does exist. However, the results suggest that it isn't particularly common because I don't think people are mindful about this, They that they think, oh, you know, they, they automatically think what, what turns someone on, oh, Perhaps success uh, turns someone on, but it's more like hair. It's more like physical characteristics. When you hear people talk about who they're, uh, you know, they're the criteria for a partner, they're just like, you know, somebody who's tall, somebody who's lean, somebody who is, um, you know, has a job, has hair, uh, has nice teeth, doesn't have, you know, um, grungy, um, you know, teeth or, or jaggy. I'm trying to think. A patient said to me one time that she was turned off by men who had jagged teeth. Anyway, whatever that meant, but meant something to her. Um, and so as part of this study in the journal Intelligence, nearly 400 adults were given a newly developed sapiosexuality questionnaire that included the following eight statements. Here we go. Stay with me now. Just come with me now. A physically attractive person with only average intelligence is a turnoff for me. Listening to someone speak very intelligently arouses me sexually. My preference for a mate is someone with average intelligence. You know, a lot of people want someone with average or lower intelligence because they want to feel better about themselves. Just saying. A very, number four, a very high level of intelligence alone is enough for me to be attracted to somebody sexually. I cannot imagine myself in a sexual relationship with someone who works in a very intellectually demanding job. Number six, I would feel, I would likely feel sexually attracted to someone significantly more intelligent than me. Number seven, I could potentially feel sexually attracted to someone significantly less intelligent than me. Number eight, it would excite me sexually to have an intellectually stimulating conversation with a potential partner. Number nine, a very high level of intelligence in a partner is necessary for me to be attracted to them sexually. You know, sometimes you have a conversation with somebody and it's so heady, it's so deep, it's so, uh, it's just a, such a much higher level. It can be arousing. Each statement was rated on a one to five scale where one means strongly disagree and five means strongly agree. And the statements three, five, and seven are reverse scored. What the researchers found was that sapiosexuality scores were almost perfectly normally distributed. They followed a bell curve. This means that most people scored near the middle, of course, with far fewer scoring on the extreme ends. In other words, true sapiosexuals, or persons with average scores close to five, were relatively few and far between. And specifically, 8% of the participants scored above a four, while just 1% scored above 4.5, above 4.5. Interestingly enough, a similarly small proportion fell at the other extreme of the of end of the scale. And this suggested that some people find high intelligence to be a real turnoff. Are they threatened by it? That's my question. That was not in the study. But it suggests that an opposite of sapiosexuality exists also, something that would be interesting to study as well. And I've already given you the answer there. <laughs> What do I think I am? Intelligent? Um, uh, 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 but I think I am a sapiosexual. 
<laughs> sapiosexual. Yeah, I'm totally attracted to intelligent people. You know, I, I don't have a lot of patience for, for people who aren't that smart, which is really bad. Um, that's not good. Anyhow, I need somebody to, you know, to toe the ro- hoe the row with me um, that has higher intelligence than I have. Um, and so validating this concept of sapio, sapiosexuality was only one part of the study. The researchers also looked more generally at the role of intelligence in attraction and whether there's an optimal IQ level that we're most attracted to. Yeah, because there's, you know, there are some of those super high intelligent people that, you know, so much is, so many of the synapses and neurons are dedicated to this intelligence that, um, you know, they may miss out a little bit on the social scene. Uh, I'm a social person as well. (laughs) If you couldn't tell, I'm an extrovert. No kidding, huh? Love people, love chatting to people, love talking to people, love learning about people. In fact, I'd rather learn about them than than share about my, my boring life. But um, so, you know, attraction and and intelligence is closely related. And, you know, so, you know, how, uh, you know, does this resonate with you? Have you thought about this before? Have you thought, hey, you know, I might, um, is it somebody that you could look at and and be, you know, at a party with them? And then you're, you know, that you don't think that they're physically attractive because, you know, I try to get people away from these lists, these, this criteria for, I want somebody who is this tall and weighs this much. And, you know, has this much hair and has this color hair and has this color eyes and has this type of teeth. I I want people to get away from that because I actually think that's limiting because I actually believe in a sexual attraction, a chemical sexual attraction. Uh, And, and, you know, is it something that, you know, you could meet somebody and you think, uh, I don't like their looks, they're a little overweight or they're a little underweight or they're too short or they're too tall or they're too thin or they're too rich. That will never happen. Anyway... (laughs) Nobody can ever be too thin or too rich. Um, but you know what? Do you, Would you like write somebody off at a party? And, you know, I get so many emails from you all out there, you fabulous listeners that I'm in a relationship with, <laughs> that we're in a relationship with together, about how do I meet somebody? How can I possibly meet anybody? You know, am I too old to meet somebody at this age? And And you know what? But no, I think no one's ever too old, but I think people are too closed. They're not open-minded enough. And so I honestly feel that people need to be open-minded in terms of their, um, you know, would I like this person? And so you look at somebody and you're like, um, you know, I don't really like them. Uh, they don't, I'm not attracted to them. You don't even talk to them yet. You haven't even spoken to them. And, and then you sit down and you have a conversation with somebody and they're so interesting and they're so kind and they make you feel good and they are attentive to you and, you know, they're super smart and you're kind of like, yeah, I could actually be attracted to this guy. He's not my type or, or this woman. She's not my type, but she's so smart. You know, I didn't find her attractive at first, but she's super smart and that's what has attracted me to her. So this is just part, you know, it's, it's studies like this that, that make us think outside the box. Because <laughs> I know a lot of you are thinking about the box or inside the box. Um, but so this, it does actually make us a little bit more mindful 
it makes us a little bit more open. It makes us think, you know what, it would be nice to be with somebody who is, um, you know, has a very high IQ. Uh, you know, it's it's an attractive quality, it, but it may not be for you. You may be of the opposite persuasion and think, no, I don't want somebody even as smart as I am because perhaps you don't have the confidence or, you know, there's too much ego there or whatever. I don't know whatever floats your boat, but this may not be attractive to you. But you got to think about it anyway. It's studies like this that make sex more interesting. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here, helping you uh, this evening, hopefully, helping you with health conditions. And, you know, there are a number of health conditions, especially for women, that are under-researched, poorly understood, underdiagnosed, and under-treated. And one of those is endometriosis, because there's a poor understanding around endometriosis. Endometriosis is an often painful disorder where the tissue that normally lines the inside of a woman's uterus, the endometrium, grows outside of the uterus. So endometriosis most commonly involves the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, and the tissues lining your pelvis. Occasionally, it will spread beyond the pelvic organs, and that can be extremely painful. The displaced endometrial tissue continues to act as it normally would, as though it were in your uterus. So it thickens, it breaks down, and it bleeds with each menstrual cycle. And because this displaced tissue has no way to leave your body, it becomes trapped. And guess what happens? It becomes extremely painful. So when the endometri- when endometriosis involves your ovaries, cysts called endometriomas may form. This can be extremely painful. Surrounding tissue becomes irritated, eventually developing scar tissue and then adhesions. And adhesions are abnormal bands of fibrous tissue that can cause pelvic tissues and organs to stick to each other. You can often hear um, about adhesions post-op in any type of um, a surgery. Endometriosis causes pain. Sometimes it can be very severe, especially during your period. And you also may experience fertility problems as a result. But there are effective treatments, and now the FDA has approved a new medication. But first I want to review the symptoms of uh, endometriosis. And so the primary symptom is pelvic pain, and that is often associated with a woman's menstrual period. And many women experience cramping during their menstrual periods, but women with endometriosis typically describe menstrual pain that is far worse than the typical menstrual pain of women who don't have the condition and that the pain increases over time. This is a hallmark symptom of endometriosis. So some of the common signs and symptoms of endometriosis include or may include, you may not have all of them, painful periods or dysmenorrhea. And that's pelvic pain and cramping. It may begin before your period. It may last well past your period. You may also have lower back and abdominal pain. You may get sexual pain as well. So pain with intercourse or during sex or after sex is also very common. Pain with uh, after sex is very common with endometriosis. You may also experience because the bladder and the bowel and the uterus and the vagina and everything, it's all been neatly packed way down there. (laughs) Um, Not sure why. And there's a whole area up above where there's not much there, but it's all together and there's so many nerves and so you actually may get pain with bowel movements or with urination. 
And um, you're most likely, again, to experience these symptoms during your period. You may have excessive bleeding. Every guy has turned the radio off right now. Um, But you might have occasional heavy periods, menorrhagia or bleeding between periods, menomteragia, infertility, as I mentioned. And you may also experience fatigue, of course, and diarrhea, constipation, bloating or nausea especially during menstrual periods. And the severity of your pain is not necessarily an indicator of the extent of the condition of, endome- of your endometriosis condition. Some people, so some women with mild endo- endometriosis may actually have really intense pain, while others with advanced endometriosis may have little pain or no pain at all. Endometriosis is sometimes mistaken for other conditions that can cause pelvic pain. And the other conditions that can cause pelvic pain are pelvic inflammatory disease or PID, ovarian cysts. It can be confused with irritable bowel syndrome because, of course, you have that uh, symptom of diarrhea. um, Because that uh, IBS or irritable bowel syndrome causes bouts of diarrhea versus constipation and abdominal cramping as well. Uh, And IBS can certainly accompany endometriosis, but um, it will also complicate the potential to get an appropriate uh, diagnosis. And it can be extremely challenging to manage endometriosis, and so many women suffer. And that's why early diagnosis is critical. Early diagnosis is critical in any medical condition. And that's why it's good to do preventive health care and to have um, the tests done that are, are recommended, you know, pap smears and mammograms. Um, And also, uh, once you have a diagnosis, it's important to have a multidisciplinary medical team who can provide you with conservative measures, quality of life treatments, and understand your diagnosis so that your uh, um, symptoms can be managed better. There are a number of causes of endometriosis. Retrograde menstruation is one of them. In retrograde menstruation, the menstrual blood containing endometrial cells flow back through the fallopian tubes and into the pelvic cavity instead of out of the body. Painful. So the displaced endometrial cells stick to the pelvic walls and the surfaces of your pelvic organs and they grow and continue to thicken and bleed over the course of every single menstrual cycle. You may also have transformation of peritoneal cells, and that's known as the induction theory. And it's thought that hormones or immune factors promote transformation of peritoneal cells. And those are the cells that line the inner side of your abdomen into your endometrial cells. There can also be one of the other causes uh, is embryonic cell transformation. And Hormones like estrogen may transform embryonic cells, and those are cells in the earliest stages of development, and they may turn them into endometrial cell implants, and that happens during puberty. You may also have surgical scar implantation. So after a hysterectomy, for example, or a cesarean section, endometrial cells may attach to a surgical lesion. You may have endometrial cells transport, which is the blood vessels or the the tissue fluid, the lymphatics, the lymphatic system may transport endometrial cells to other parts of the body, causing pain in other areas of the body as well. Another cause is an immune system disorder. It is possible that a problem with your immune system may make your body unable to recognize and destroy endometrial tissue that is growing outside of the uterus. There are a number of risk factors for endometriosis. It's been said a lot of women feel be- feel better after from endometriosis after they've had a baby. So 
never giving birth is one of the risk factors for endometriosis. Starting your period at a very early age, going through menopause at an older age. If you have shorter menstrual cycles, for example, less than 27 days, you are at greater risk for developing endometriosis. This doesn't mean you're going to get it. These are just risk factors. Having higher levels of estrogen in your body or a greater lifetime exposure to estrogen your body produces. Low body mass index, alcohol consumption, one or more relatives, so a history, a mother, aunt, or sister that has endometriosis, and any medical condition that prevents the normal passage of menstrual flow out of your body and uterine abnormalities. You may face infertility with this. You are at uh, greater risk of ovarian cancer. It does occur at higher than expected rates in women with endometriosis. So what I wanted to let you know about is that the FDA, a federal drug agency, has actually approved a new drug for endometriosis pain. They've approved Elagalix or Orilisa, the first drug developed for the treatment of moderate to severe pain from endometriosis. So they've approved this medication, Elagalix, under priority review. And so it's likely to be available in the U.S. next month. So I imagine this is going to come to Canada as well. Um, And so this is for uh, women with moderate to severe endometriosis pain. So it's a good thing. Um, Chronic pain is brutal. It's just uh, an absolutely horrific thing to live with. If you've ever had any type of chronic pain, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And it's, it's brutal. Anyway, we are, we're in the, I guess the final stroke of the program. And um, thank you so much for being here with me tonight. Thank you, Andrew, as always, for doing a bang up job here on the Sunday night health show. Uh, You know, managing the, the board is not an easy job and it takes an intelligent guy to do that. A pretty smart guy in order to do that. So uh, fortunately, we have Andrew here <laughs> every Sunday night assisting me, uh, which is great. Um, think about that. You were attracted to uh, intelligent people. I love that subject. Okay. I did want to just mention, you know, if you've heard this program before, you know, I love music. And, you know, Tom Petty said it best. Music is probably the only real magic I've encountered in my life. There's not some trick involved with it. It's pure and it's real. It moves, it heals, it communicates, and it does all these incredible things. And it's so true. So, you know what? Take some time. Listen to the music. It's romantic. You know, just be with one another. Be in the moment. Be mindful. But if you're not and you're on social media, head on over to Twitter. Uh, my handle is at back the number two, the bedroom. You can uh, go to Facebook. I'm there as well. You can link with me on LinkedIn. And remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you have been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on the AM dial 980 CKNW.